Derek Rowan, better known to you and me as Googie, is an artist, painter and sculptor and once a member of the post-punk band Virgin Prunes. Opening this Thursday at the Curling Gallery in Dublin is Them, an exhibition of new paintings, sculpture and works on paper by Googie. Over the past three decades, the artist has gained recognition for his art and these well-established forms and techniques are used in this exhibition on a deeply personal subject, the recent loss of both his parents. Delighted that Googie is, is with me in studio this evening. And we were chatting about your parents just before we, we came to air, Googie, and you, you felt they got a reasonably good deal when it came to the bits, uh, even though you've lost both of them in, in the last couple of years. Sure. Um, you know, I can't complain. Uh, look, my mum was in great form holding one of her grandchildren I think one of her great-grandchildren, actually, over in my sister's house. She said she felt great. She was laughing. Everything was wonderful. And 36 hours later, she was gone. And she really didn't suffer for very long. And, you know, I think I'd settle for that. And and your dad had died the year previous to that. Yeah, my mum died last April and my dad the February before that. Mm. Was there... I mean, I don't know how you, you you kind of process that at the time, particularly as an artist, or does it kind of just seep its way into the work subsequent to it, even without you knowing you're doing it? That is absolutely how it happened, actually, because I would say I was more than halfway through this exhibition when I realised that um, my parents were very present. Um, I did this series of work called Robbie and Me, um, I very much see it now as a collaboration between both of us. Um, my dad was a collector and a hoarder. He loved anything on wheels. Any car that he had, when it hit its sell-by date, he kept it. We counted uh, 14 cars in his front driveway. And then I don't know how many cars in um the back. There were cars, there were trucks, there were motorcycles, there were bikes. But I've always been interested in surface and some of these old vans with R.S. Rowan and Sons on the side of it, which was his business. Mm. Um, they had fallen down onto their axles. The sides of them were covered in rust and mould. And being interested in surface, we just, myself and Gabriella, my partner, went out there. We photographed a tiny amount of what he had left behind. And... I then brought them to my um, my fine art printer. He printed them, he mounted them, and then my simple objects that I have always worked with, yeah. I painted over the photographs. Well, let's let's tweet one of the Robbie and Me series. This is Robbie and Me one, <laughs> the very first in the series. And exactly as you describe it there, we can see this bowl to the foreground and in underneath it, all of this stuff of your of your of your dad's and batteries. Was it a battery business? Was it a car business? What exactly? Yeah, my was dad the business worked forever at batteries for eighteen years, and uh, then he went out on his own, and he started introducing to the customers that he had had for so long. He started introducing Duracell batteries, Vidor batteries, and many other brands. Um, I don't think Everetti should really ever have fallen out with them because now you go into a shop and you see all of these brands mm. and it used to be just 
have a right. Yeah, and then the other brands did come in and, and, and people diversified as a result of that. But when I look at this, I wonder if the, the, the painting that's in front of me, or at least a, a reproduction of it in front of me, there's so much of your father present uh, on it. I wonder how present he was in the studio when you were painting those objects over it and how emotional that presence was. You know, I was using them for their visual wealth, really. I mean, that's what I was interested in. Like I say, most of that series was done before I mm. realised that, uh, you know, they were so there. Um, another paint, you know, my mum was very much on mind when I made a painting called For Winnie. Um, and I realised that it was very much for her when it was almost finished, actually. So I never set out to do this um, hugely biographical exhibition, mm. but um, but we don't plan these things. Yeah. And as a painter, I would say I kind of take what's given to me. And I'm looking at, at For Winnie now at RT Arena, by the way, if you want to look at these images of Googies that we're speaking about. And this is, um, it, it's typical of several of the paintings, I think, in the exhibition in that there are, to simplify it, two large rectangular blocks of colour and then certain uh, aspects, shapes, lines, textures uh, on the top of those two blocks of colour. At what point did you realise this is this is coming from my mother, this is an expression of my mother in some way? I would say when the painting was almost finished, it seemed to remind me of her in some way. Um, I don't think I realised that I was doing this painting in her honour or her memory. Mm. Um, but it dawned on me very close to finishing that piece of work. And when you say in her honour, it, it, it's hardly surprising that you would want to honour her, apart from her being your mother, which is a perfectly brilliant reason to honour uh, honor a woman. But it really was she, I think, who was pretty responsible for your pursuing art at a very young age. And accepting that when others were saying, get your head out of that drawing sure, and sure. do your sums and your reading, she was encouraging you to stick you know, with she the drawing gave me and painting. Yeah, I mean, she gave me incredible uh, encouragement. I'm not sure that she had developed, you know, or acquired a taste for abstract painting, really. Um, I think she... I th she actually, you know, anything that myself or my nine brothers or sisters did, whether she got it or not, um, she seemed to love it. While my dad on the other side could not make head nor tail of me. <laughs> I mean, there was somebody that worked for him that would bring in photographs from various different newspapers of the Virgin Prunes. And it actually really annoyed him. Um, he was not a cultured man and the Virgin Prunes really wrecked his head. Having said that, we wrecked a lot of people's heads. <laughs> well, that was part of the plan, really, wasn't it, with the Virgin Prunes? It was always there, I think, in some way. I'm not sure that we planned it. In one way, we kind of didn't really know what we were at. I think we just took our license from this new thing that was mm. happening called punk. And we decided, I'm not much of a singer, uh, the boys weren't great musicians. Maybe Dick, uh, our guitar players, uh, player, was pretty the Edge's brother, isn't it? Yeah. That's the Edge's yeah. older brother. We've always maintained that it was he that taught um, 
Edge had to play guitar, but they really played together and learnt together, I think. But we just found this way of expressing something. I think with myself and Gav, we were two angry young men. Mm. And this was in some way um, a way of releasing yeah. that. And, and you, you've mentioned Edge there, you've mentioned Gav, Gav being Gavin Friday, uh, not his real name, Edge. Clearly not his real well, name. Well, we would see it that they are their real names. Their parents, our parents called us the wrong names. <laughs> and Googie is the real name then. And it, Bono gave you the name Googie. You gave him the name Bono. Because that's what you felt about each other. You, you were looking for names that described the person for you guys. And sure, therefore it yeah. is a real name because that's what it did. What did... Um, have you lived up to the name Googie, do you think? What did it tell you to be? Because people often say that the name that you're given is a kind of a signpost for the direction you should send your life in. Absolutely. You know, um, well, when Bono gave me that name, he said, Googie describes something of your physicality. It describes something of your essence. And as it happens, it's a painter's name. Um, it's not a name that I liked at all. Uh, I don't think any of us particularly liked our names when we were first given them, but we didn't actually have a say in the matter. And they weren't, they weren't nicknames per se. These were something beyond nicknames, really, weren't they? Yeah, we were fascinated by the idea of putting a word uh, that describes something of somebody's physicality, mm. I suppose facially, uh, mostly, and their head. And... But, you know, that it also says something about them. We were really fascinated by this as kids of 13 and 14. Um, they were some of the avenues that we pursued because, you know, we really were um, amazed that we could find these words that meant something um, and described something about people we were interested in. Let's go back to the exhibition. Let's go back to, because I've mentioned your mum, I've mentioned your dad. Let's talk about your granny and the jars and the jugs in her house. They're responsible. And I don't know, for some reason, jars and jugs and googie, they all go together in my head. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, but they kind of do. Maybe it's just a sound thing. Um, let me tweet one of the images um, up from the jars. This is uh, googie jars, 23 different jars in this particular image. Talk to me about those jars in your granny's house and what they said to you or did to you. You know, <coughs> these early water jugs, I guess they were designed to be purely functional. and mm -hmm. um, They were not, I don't think, designed to be beautiful. And you'd have these big tin, T-I-N, uh, tin jugs with an enormous <laughs> spout. And a handle, you know, a flat handle often welded to the body of the jug. And I just remember as a child thinking it was the ugliest thing I ever saw. It actually in some way upset me. I was really affected by such mm. things. Um, I wanted to smash it up. I really didn't like it. And, um, and over the years, many years after my grandmother passed away, I came across one of these water jugs. It was white with these little navy blue rims and then a little bit of navy blue on each end of the welded handle. And I just thought it was rather beautiful. 
And it's strange. You know, I hated them at first as a child and I grew to love them. And just the pure functionality of these jugs that were designed, I guess, are made to hold as much water as possible. Mm. But I don't think ever really designed to look beautiful. And it was from there that some kind of a beauty came. And, and you know, just awkward objects of utility. I just took an interest in them and started collecting them for many years. And then I started painting them a lot of years ago. And I have an enormous collection yeah. of them now. And but, and but, even but, but they're not worth anything. Yeah, and, and that first painting that we looked at with with your father's, with the, the sign of your father's van on in underneath it and then that bowl on the top. I don't know if the punk in you will rail against the idea that you might be a classicist, but of course we've Grecian orange, Greek vases, you know, that has been kind of one of, that kind of the functionality of those bowls and vases has been something that has interested visual artists down the years. Do you see yourself somehow in that classical line? I guess I couldn't deny it. You Hmm. know, it's certainly not something that I thought about when I started discovering these shapes. I mean, in the very early days, being fascinated by faces, being being fascinated by heads. I was actually working on an abstract head and I was working on the side of it, always interested in surface. And I said, that surface looks like the side of a bowl, Hmm. the side of one of those old uh, clay jars. And I just stopped making that painting and I turned around and I started painting these simple objects. And I guess right up until that point, I was really searching for a vocabulary and they simply became part of my vocabulary. You know, having said that in some of these big abstract paintings, there is now only a broken line that runs out of the painting. And that only takes up, people would say that, you know, well, you paint bowls, that's the side of a bowl. But if you look at it, it only takes up two or three percent of what is a large abstract painting. In fact, I'm going to, because there is a series of paintings within the exhibition as well called Broken. And I want to tweet one of those now. I'm going to tweet the second one. I don't know, Broken 2, and this is Broken 2D. And it has a, a kind of a rusty amber uh, on the left hand side is the is the block of color, and a, a graying white on the on the right hand side, and one of those broken lines down through it. the The title "Broken," however, is a very evocative title. Where does that come from, and does does it link in in any way into recent um, recent autobiographical details? You know, I think it possibly does. I mean, it was a broken childlike line that would be generally the very last thing that I would put on one of these uh, graphite line, as in the the works on paper, Mm. distressed brown industrial paper. Um, I called it broken. But I think the very first uh, painting from that series came when my marriage was breaking down. Um, once again, I'm not really one for analysing my work, you know, and talking about it in that way. But that is certainly when that broken line first mm. appeared. I uh, think about six years ago, maybe six and a half years ago. Um, so, like I say, I don't analyse these things. But looking back on it a couple of years ago, when that series started, I couldn't help but remembering that um, there was something that was very much 
broken. Yeah, yeah, and, and it is there. That line is there in, in several of the paintings in, in this exhibition as well. Dealing, I suppose, dealing with a broken marriage, you were married for 30 years, I think, at the time. So it was, it was a long, yeah, I think long, 25, 26, something like that. A long relationship yeah, at, any, yeah. at any rate. And you, your parents, obviously, in there in the midst of all of that as well. I take your point that you don't analyse your paintings in that way. But do you have a sense subsequent to making the paintings that and somehow somehow you're you're wrestling with those subcon the subconscious nature of those emotions and that you're actually maybe sorting them out. You know something, I couldn't disagree with that. And um if I was to take a guess, I would say yes. Um I would say yes because you know when I look over you know my work in the last six or seven years um, and the things that were very present in my life, the things that deeply affected me, there's no doubt about mm. the fact that uh, these emotions, these feelings, um, probably trying to make sense of them in some way. But I do think at the time in a subconscious way, but when I look back on them, I guess I'm exercising these things, perhaps. I certainly could not argue with mm. With that, uh, with that point, yeah. Because the other, the other thing that struck me in and around the broken series, I wondered to what extent. Because you had a bit of a health scare. Uh, what, what was that health scare, and when was it? And I think you're, you look to me like you're in fine fettle right now. Well, look, I escaped a bullet, and there's no doubt about that. It was a ruptured aneurysm um, on the frontal lobe of my brain. Um, it presented itself in a very strange way. I had suffered from migraine headaches actually for about 30 years and they kept getting worse. Sometimes a couple of glasses of red wine would set them off, then maybe one glass of red wine. And, you know, in the months before the aneurysm ruptured, anything set them off. I didn't mm. have to take a drink. I'm trying to live really clean because I've become terrified of the sheer agony that comes, you know, this thing kicks in, the pain is kind of unbearable. And then you start throwing up for 14 or 16 hours. And the thunderclap headache, I had oh. never heard of it before is how it presented itself. Um, myself and um, my partner, Gabriella, were having, um, in her Americanized way, date night. <laughs> and we were having a few drinks. And all of a sudden, just immediately, I said, there's something really wrong. It's not a migraine. I've never felt this before. And I could, I know we're on radio, not on television, but literally at this speed, mm. I could feel this thing starting in the very top of my head. I should tell you, though, that people can see us if they go to the website, rte.a forward slash arena. We are visual at the moment oh, as well. Okay, so they okay. have seen you pulling your hands down over your head. And it and literally went sense of something at this speed. Down. It went right down my head at this speed down the back of my neck, stopped at the base of my neck. And if traveling at the same speed, even though I didn't feel it moving, it picked up in each cheek of my ass and ran down the backs of my legs. And I just curled up in a ball on the couch. We were listening to music. We were having a drink. We were dancing. I just curled up and I didn't want anybody to touch me. Gabriella starts saying, I'm going to call an ambulance. No, don't call an ambulance. I just would not run with it. And, um, but that was the way it manifested itself. And one and a half days later, she talked me into calling an ambulance. Um, some you waited, guy came you waited up. a day and a half. 
A day and a half later, yeah. Wow. And I mean, time is the essence. Yeah. If, if you want to save your own ass in a situation like this, I just, I didn't mind dying. I just didn't want anybody to touch me. And one and a half days later, thankfully, she managed to talk me into it. Um, some old gentleman uh, came up, uh, arrived in a car, stuck a needle into my vein, missed a few times. He was, he was quite, elderly. Um, about a half an hour later, the ambulance arrives, takes me into um, Vincent's hospital. And this, the other thing I was terrified was being told to wait in a waiting room. But I was sent to wait in a waiting room. No, good man, you just sit there now. Don't move. And then all of a sudden, and there's other people sitting there. I really felt, you know, they have a lot on their hands. They yeah. don't have the staff to treat me terribly well. And then all of a sudden, the VIP treatment starts happening. A wheelchair comes out. They wheel me behind a door. They put me onto a bed trolley. And now they can't do enough for me. They, anyway, the results of the CT scan came in. I was told what the problem was. I said, OK, what's the plan? We're waiting on an ambulance to take you to Beaumont Hospital for brain surgery in the morning. And that was it. That was the story. I got my brain surgery in the morning. They were, they were going to try and go up through my groin. If that didn't work, they were going to go through my skull. But it did work. Um, and I couldn't help noticing there were people being wheeled out of intensive care for their operation and they were not being wheeled back. Um, I was, thankfully, wheeled back. And there is, There's one moment in the midst of all of that, that story that I think is incredible because it shows a phenomenal sense of humour, albeit very black. They were constantly, I think the doctors were constantly asking you, you know, well, what's your name, what's your date of birth, what's your name, what's your date of birth. Then you're, you're actually in the operating theatre, I think, and one of the doctors so says... So I was, I was brought down by lift. I mean, it felt like about 15 floors down. I think somebody said it might have been seven floors down. I'm wheeled and I'm outside the operating theatre. Theater. And I mean, it, I, I could see right through the door. It mm. looked like what I would imagine the NASA space station to look like. <laughs> and this was during COVID. Yeah. So there's people around me with, not only with masks and all the usual stuff, there were about four women around and they had the big thing and they're writing information down. And okay, what date is it? What year is it? What date is it? This this happened in April, uh, last April, two years ago. So 2021. And I yeah. said it's the 26th of January, 1976. And I could feel, see through all of these thick layers, their faces dropping. And I just started laughing. I must have been on painkillers <laughs> or something. And I said, I'm only joking. I said, it's the 26th of April. But... It reminded me of the Mr. Smoke Too Much sketch in uh, Monty Python. Mr. Smoke Too Much, will you better cut down a little? The guy had never heard the joke before. <laughs> <laughs> they got to laugh at but they had never heard the joke before. It's a strange thing. I was never, ever frightened. I was never afraid. What I was afraid of was the extreme pain that I kept going into. I was afraid I would start going into that pain again. And, you know, they say it, it takes at least a year to get over it. It certainly, as much as I have got over it, 
It certainly took me two years, I would think. But uh, but I got over it. And yeah, I'm, you did I'm well. Fine. And good to see that you have done and that you're, as I say, you look and find fatal to me. That's not a medical opinion. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> That'll um, do me. <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to seeing how all of that will make its way into the work because maybe it is there in the current exhibition, but I think that's possibly... It changed me as yeah. a painter and there's no doubt about that. Between that, and uh, my sense of self-preservation grew hugely. I used to take chances on motorcycles. I used to take chances maybe that I shouldn't take. Um, I don't tend to do that anymore. I feel this enormous sense of duty to my gift. Um, you know, I'll make a certain amount of paintings in the rest of my life and I feel such a strong sense of duty. And, you know, then followed by my parents passing away, it feels, really does feel, and I said it to somebody the other day, but it really feels like they left me something. I have become a better painter through all of that. Wow. And one last thing, I don't get migraines anymore. Which is a very nice thing, I would say, to yeah. have lost out yeah, of your life. Yeah. Googie, thanks so much for coming into us and fascinating for conversation. Me, it was thanks. such a pleasure. Thank thanks you. for that. Uh, Googie's exhibition, which is called Them, is on from Thursday this week uh, of this week and it's there at the Carolyn Gallery right through until the 24th of February. Full details on carolyngallery.com. People of a certain age may remember the shocking events at a demonstration outside the Libyan embassy in London in April 1984 at which WPC Yvonne Fletcher was shot dead. Hisham Matar's new novel, My Friends, tells the story of three friends, Khaled, Mustafa and Hossam, whose lives are changed forever when they are caught up in that demonstration. It follows their friendship over 30 years. Hisham Matar, the Booker shortlisted Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Return, born in New York City to Libyan parents, he spent his childhood childhood in Tripoli and Cairo and has lived most of his adult life in London. In 1990, when Hisham was 20, his father Jabala Matar, a prominent dissident, disappeared during Colonel Gaddafi's regime. The return is a memoir that follows Hisham's return to Libya in 2012 to find out what happened. His new novel, My Friends, is his first in 13 years and I'm delighted that uh, Hisham Matar joins me on the line this evening from London. You may or may not have heard the, the conversation that I had uh, before before the break, um, Hisham, which was with an Irish artist, Googie, who was talking about the deaths of his parents and personal events and how they expressed themselves in his art. Your life, and it's a, quite an extraordinary set of stories, not least because of your father, your life is hugely informative in both your fiction and your non-fiction work. How does it feed into your fiction, would you say? Um, very difficult to uh, to uh, to answer that uh, because I think I write fiction in a way to to think about all these things or at least partly. Um, but I think it, I think in one way what it does is that it does make me see the present as contingent, which I think is the case with all of us. I don't think it's an exclusive uh, right to the exile only. I think we all have that, but maybe. With somebody like me, where I was born somewhere, brought up somewhere, and then live in a completely different place, uh, born in one language, coming of age in another, the fault lines are very, are very um, vibrant, you know. <laughs> um, and and the and right beside me, uh, I feel are 
the other possibilities that I would have become had I stayed or had my parents gone here instead of there or had they sent me to French school instead of English school, et cetera, et cetera, all the possibilities. And in my in my novel, in uh, uh, my friends, the set of friends that I write about, each one of them uh, is also accompanied by the ghosts of their, of their alternative self, you know. And there is an accidental nature when you talk about the present is always contingent. There is an accidental nature to your three friends and even how they end up becoming friends. It's, it's such a kind of quirk yeah. of fate. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and it seems that, um, I mean, again, I would, I would insist that all of this is commonplace with all of us. Um, you know, where we end up, where we end up, the way our parents meet what happens afterwards, how we come into the world, where they decide to send us to go to school, where we, what we make of ourselves, who we meet. All of these things seem to me so, you know, universally um, filled with, 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 with mystery and accident. <laughs> but with, with these friends, because they do leave home, they come to, uh, to, to Edinburgh. They go to Edinburgh University uh, on a scholarship very, you know, excited. Um, and uh, the plan was to, you know, to go to university and then finish, go back home, resume an expected life. Um, but then about six or seven months into their time here, uh, they excitedly, partly out of an excuse to really just spend a couple of days in London, you know, take the bus and come to attend a, a demonstration in front of the embassy, an event that really did happen as you... Mm. You, you mentioned, uh, and everything changes, of course, you know, that one, you know, half-hearted uh, d- decision, uh, uh, you know, takes their lives in a completely different direction, and, and they respond differently to that. Um, the main protagonist, I think, is much more committed to the present in ways that I, I found very Fascinating. Yeah, the, the main protagonist is Khaled, who, who uh, in fact is walking through London as we meet him, passing various spots along the way, and the memories come flowing back to him as he makes that as he makes that journey home. But the events of that that kind of it, Khaled and Mustafa are the two guys who head off to the demonstration, as you say, more as as much as anything else for a bit of a bit of a day out in London. Where were you on the day of that protest at the Libyan embassy in in London in April 1984? I'm about five years shy of my protagonist, so I'm I was 13 when it happened, and um, I was in Cairo living with my family, um, uh, and uh, I saw it on the news, and it marked me very deeply. I mean, you know, it's quite a shocking event. You know, people are demonstrating peacefully and suddenly you know, bullets sound and 11 demonstrators are shot and WPC Von Fletcher, a young policewoman, uh, dies. Um, and but So I remember that, but what I remember most is um, these young Libyans who are all masked, you know, wearing balaclavas to, to, to conceal their identities, are, um, you know, twisting on the ground and screaming uh, from the pain of the bullets. And I caught one of them uh, calling out to his mother. And as a child, a 13-year-old, I thought, I found that detail shocking because I think I somehow on some level assumed that 
adults don't call for their mother, <laughs> you know, in desperation. So I found that detail really unsettling. And so I decided that I'd misheard it until I heard one of the adults behind me say almost to himself out loud, he's calling for his mother. Um, and that's really the detail that stayed with me for years. And then as luck happened, they had it about six or seven years later. And when I was here in London, myself going to university here, uh, I met the same person who was calling for his mother and became, you know, intimately close friends with. And I didn't know he was at the demonstration or that he was shot for a good two or three years, you know, because such things, you don't talk about them. They're yeah. just, you know, uh, and, uh, um, and I never really asked him about them. You know, I never asked my friends. I have two very close friends who were there. I never asked them about it. You know, why would you, right? I mean, but but, um, but as happens in a friendship, things begin to emerge and yeah. you start to notice certain <laughs> details. Um, so I feel like I've, I've been initiated into this events obliquely and over a long period of time, what you, but so, int so intimately in such a way that I could make something else of it, you know, some, something else, you know. Which, which does beg the question, do you think that is accidental? That, first of all, you should be watching it, that you should note that particular detail, although it is a very noteworthy detail to see uh, an adult lying on the ground shouting for their mother, but that you should note that detail, that you should subsequently meet that person. I mean, how much of that uh, is pure yeah. accident or are you a fatalist in any way, shape or form? Impossible to answer that. Impossible to answer that. I mean, I would like to say that I, I am, I am cured of 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 superstition, but I don't think I am. You know, I think, <laughs> I think on some level, I'm. You know, I've I've been led to these things somehow. I don't know. I don't know. It's impossible to to, to answer. What I do know, though, is that, um, you know, all of that goes into the mix of my own, you know. Uh, fancy and my own obsessions and my own curiosities and so on. Obsession is not the right word. I've never liked that word. But mm. all, all of the things that interest me. And, um, and, and the novel I know is made up of all of that. You know? So I've been collecting. I do feel a bit like to write a novel is a curious business because you, you write it out of the result of living and feeling and collecting a particular set of experiences. But the strange thing is that you start to write it exactly at the moment, or at least I do, exactly at the moment when you don't have language for the thing that you want to talk about. Um, so I always assumed before I wrote anything that novels are written at the moment of mastery. <laughs> you know, once you've become a master over something, that's when you, you divulge your, your wisdom. <laughs> but I found that it's actually the opposite. It's, it's when the questions mature. And your ability to find the right language, the right words, the right cadence, rhythm, structure uh, for it uh, is, is, you know, the, the need becomes really, mm. uh, you know, it, um, so powerful. Uh, um, or at least that's been the case for me. So here, there's lots of things. I mean, that event is definitely very important and you're right for us to focus on it. But really for me, all of that, they're all... That's the architecture, that the main subject of the book is friendship, but also the distance between the heart and the world, you know, between what each one of us feels and what we say to express it. 
and the infidelity between those two things. You know, the book starts with that. It starts with, mm. it is, of course, impossible to be certain of what is inside anyone's chest, least of all one's own, or those we know well, especially those we know best. That's how the book begins. And to me, it's the whole thing is an articulation of that question. I, I, I given, and I, I will move on from that event of April in 1984, but it does strike me that, given that you, you came to know that man who was lying on the ground. But also, so that we're talking about a real person, there's another event in the book which, you know, echoes the the, the, the killing of the BBC uh, Arabic World Service presenter, Mohammed Mustafa Ramadan. And of course, PC, WPC Yvonne Fletcher is a real woman with a family. When you're taking those real life events and working them into a, a, a piece of fiction, as my friends is, what kind of concerns do you have? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I don't do it. I don't do it lightly or easily, and and I question it. Um, um, you know, for all the obvious reasons. Mm. But um, but then something switches at some point. You know, you 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 know, those questions for me at least are on one side of the initiation process of me being initiated into the book and into its themes and into its attitude, which is how it feels like. It feels like the book itself has its own attitude and I'm trying to trying to enter it in some way. But once I am in, I really feel, uh, I, I lose all inhibitions like that and I just um, hope that I, I do it with yeah, again, as you're as you're describing it, there you're <laughs> you're almost describing the book as a character in and of itself, a book that finds you as opposed to you writing it and making it up, and I guess maybe the presence of real life events are part of that, and it it comes back to that question of fatalism, I suppose, in some ways. But I wondered also how different is writing a fiction in and around those real life events from writing, uh, you know, the return, the non-fiction description of your own going back to Libya to to search in the hope that you might find what happened to your father, who basically disappeared without trace. Yes, they're 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 very different, but you know, I don't know to what extent the difference is to do with genre or with the nature of of those two particular books, you know, because the return is a very particular book. It came out of my veins, you know. It was, it wasn't. It was a book that I had um, grave doubts about writing it, about whether I can write it, whether I'd be able to bear writing it. Uh, uh, it's a book that asks me to be excessively patient with things that make me deeply impatient you know i don't the questions that the return was asking and wanting me to sort of engage with aren't questions that i uh um you know you know the question you know for example it's a story that has in it a lot of uh, dark places um uh, a lot of things that i don't know you know i don't know how my father's um, I don't know what his last days were like. I don't know when he died, how he died, where he died. Um, I, I, and the book, because of its register and the way that it thought about those things, it, it takes me to those moments, you know, what it was like, what was his solitude like, mm. what was he thinking about. So uh, at the same time, I 
it had a range, you know, a repertoire that was very broad. You know, it engaged with ideas and landscape and the vernacular and journalism and war and lots of different uh, registers. So it was paradoxically both thrilling, you know, to to write because there was a lot going on and a lot to balance. Uh, but it was in moments really unbearable, you know. So yeah. um, whereas, you know, my friends is uh yeah no it's 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 a different book it's also also again here the scale is quite big you know it's yes it's a far bigger book than i've written before so but you know the strange thing that is hard to explain or to or to even for me to account for is how these books seem to be beside one another you know that i feel one makes the other one possible or advances a certain set of concerns or ideas or registers that I am I'm exploring, you know, in, in the work, you know, relationship to time, the past and the present, how to organize, you know, a, a narrative that you could tease out the way memory resides in the present, and a whole host of other things. So, so I see them not exactly as a straight line, but the divisions between them are both distinct but collaborative, yeah. if I could put it that way. Yeah, and I hope that um, the writing of my friends then has freed you up to give us some more fiction and not thirteen years, please. This time now, will you promise? Yeah. Will you promise <laughs> me you. that, Aisha? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, I do. I do feel if it's any consolation, I, I, you know, in in my heart, I do feel as a novelist, and this did, did feel very much like a homecoming for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. Thank you yeah. for speaking with us about my friends this evening. Thank you for having me. All the best. You too. That's Hisham Matar, whose novel My Friends is out now and it's published by Penguin. It was a movie, then it was a musical, and then it was a musical movie. This is a trend many movies are now following. The most recent example is the remake of Mean Girls that will be coming out in cinemas here this week. You don't have to go too far back to find the original version of Mean Girls, written by Tina Fey, starring Lindsay Lohan. It was released in 2004, followed by Mean Girls Musical, hitting Broadway in 2018, and now it returns to the screens once again. We've seen the trend uh, many times before, of course. Hairspray, Little Shop of horrors to name but two becoming even more common and what do people think of these recycled musical movies well I'm joined now by Ruth Barton Professor of Film at Trinity College who's going to tell me what she thinks about them <laughs> whatever what <laughs> well actually it? I mean you know, it really depends on how they do it yeah um, I'd say you know, I'd say I'd say Mean Girls would be great to be honest and you know you were saying it's not longer it's 20 years I know when I said years. not long ago 2004 <laughs> I said yeah 20 years yeah so there's a whole generation that you know don't remember the movie for, for very good reason but it was it was a classic and I went to see actually on behalf of Arena I think last year I went to see mm. Heathers when it was in oh, yeah. the board gosh and, and you know Heathers is actually quite like Mean Girls it's yeah. all about being mean at, at high school and the girl who doesn't fit in and then there's the gang and in this case it's the plastics and then there's the the, the bitchy girl who terrorises everybody and you know you kind of mix yeah. them around but you get Heathers you get Mean Girls and is there, there's is lots it, of potential there and that's what I was going to ask yeah. you that. Is there a, are there a particular set of criteria that mean yes they have to do it properly and they have to do it well mm. but that here is something that has the potential to go from ordinary straightforward story to musical story yeah there are things I mean there are things you can't have like you know most westerns with the lone cowboy hero 
don't unless they're the singing cowboy type or else you know well okay we all love Oklahoma but you know by and large westerns don't make great musicals so what you really need is you know you need a torch song so you need a romantic you need usually a, a romantic relationship or two warring central characters so you have to two characters who really have central weight in the film so a lot of those you know that cuts out a lot of, of Hollywood stuff and you and they also one of the reasons the high school movies make good musicals is you need a you need a like a chorus, so the kind of cliques of yes. girls and or, or girls and boys, um, they make a really good chorus because they can they can kind of do the background singing and dancing, and also one of the things that you know if you remember Mean Girls, um, or Heather's, they're very gaudy to start with, and and I'd say that about Hairspray, and I'd say that about Little Shop of Horrors. I mean they're gaudy to the point of high camp. And, and so, so the facility is there. Yeah, to... there's all, and, and the audience knows that. Like they're familiar enough, you know, they probably yeah. just feel they've seen the film, even if they haven't, because of the bright colours and and the kind of you know clutter of of the set, really. Well, before we hear a little bit from Regina George from the original film, just remind us of the basic setup. You've kind of touched on it. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the the odd one out and the that's right. The clique at, in the high school. Yeah. So it's, so the the story um the story starts off with um. Uh, Katie Heron, who's played by Lindsay Lowe, and this was an early role for her and it really made her name. Mm. She's been homeschooled because her parents are researchers in Africa and they've come back because mum has got um, a, a job at Northwestern and so they've come back to America, they've come back to Evanston and she's going to school for the high school for the very first time. So she doesn't know anything, she can't read the rules of high school and as she hardly is in there. Um, when she does everything wrong and she gets into trouble. But she's befriended by two socialised outcasts, one who's called Janice Ian, um, <laughs> played by Lizzie Kaplan, and 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 the guy who's always calling himself gay, um, who's uh, Damien, played um, by Daniel Francisi. But what they say to her is, watch out for the bitch, basically. And the bitch is the, um, the mean girl, and she's um, uh, Regina played by Rachel McAdam and Rachel McAdam also became a big star mm. and she has her clique called the Plastics and they all wear pink and they all kind of throw their hair back and they are, you know, top of the heap and they boss and bully everybody around them. Well, here then is the, the clip from the original film explaining the Regina George phenomenon. Regina George. How do I even begin to explain Regina George? Regina George is flawless. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. I hear her hair is insured for $10,000. I hear she does car commercials in Japan. Her favorite movie is Varsity Blues. One time she met John Stamos on a plane. And he told her she was pretty. One time she punched me in the face. It was awesome. <laughs> she loved it. Anyway, she loved being. It was the best experience she'd yeah. ever so, have being so punched in the that's face. That's a group of the friends. In, yeah, these are people in high school. Yeah, so you got a montage of the other girls in class, or the other people in class, just you know, speaking to cameras, saying how much they adore her. So she's absolute queen bee. And of course, then there's a shared love interest because Regina's ex is this kind of goofily handsome jock type. And um, of course, uh, Katie falls for him. And even though he's Regina's ex, she. Doesn't, she's not happy about oh, the yeah, idea of somebody. So there's a big tussle about that. So then we get into the musical situation, and you know the clip that we just heard could be a chorus of people singing <laughs> line by line, but instead we get a, a song from. Is it from Regina or about Regina in the in the in the musical version? In the well, I haven't seen I haven't mm. seen the musical version yet, but um, I mean, what they're going to do is they're going to turn all those all those into into songs, mm. and um. 
What they're also going to do, of course, is, I mean, here's the thing that's made everything different for us is TikTok. Yeah. Because what they're going to do is they're going to release this song they're gonna, and it's going to hit TikTok. And then everybody's going to do remixes of it. And and so the song's going to, they hope, the, the producer, it's just going to mushroom and mushroom and mushroom. So TikTok is going to send the film and because, sell the musical. Yeah, TikTok is really the marketing device yeah. for the musical. Things have changed. Let's have a listen to Regina's song as it will be in the new Mean Girls. Regina George And I am a massive dear I will grind you to sand Beneath my lieutenant here This is what I get for helping Helping someone like this There's Regina. Explaining. You sound sorry for she, herself, she, doesn't she? <laughs> very down in the mouth. That, that's from the new version. By the way, it is Tina Fey, etc., who are involved yeah, in the Tina writing Yeah, Tina Fey goes right through this. Yeah, she wrote it, she's in it. And so. There are so many other episodes or other examples of this that we could pick on Little Chop of Horrors is one, Hairspray is one, as you say, and we could go through the various versions of A Star is Born. But I want to concentrate on Philadelphia Story briefly and High Society. Explain the relationship between the two of them. Yeah, well, High Society is the musical of Philadelphia Story. But, you know, I think um, so. So Philadelphia Story is, you know, is one of the. Yeah, the really great um, sort of rom, you know, rom-coms mm. as they were or as they are now, um, and it's you know fantastic. Anybody who's a Catherine Hepburn star, it has Catherine Hepburn, it has Cary Grant, it has James Stewart in it, it has the great names. And this was the big comeback for Catherine Hep- Hepburn, who'd been labelled box office poison by, by Variety mm. shortly before this. And it's a fantastic comedy. She's this rich society heiress. She's been married to Cary Grant's character. She's divorced him. She's about to have her second marriage um james stewart steps in as the reporter to cover it and but she suddenly oh my goodness mm. does she actually really love Cary grant after all and yeah. there's a sort of a screwball comedy it's aspect screwball comedy, to that yeah. and so the, it's, it's patter the, oh yeah it's, it's quick, the line it's the dialogue stuff. so yeah. does that translate into this very beautiful song nicely in your mind yes well this is um so th- so we have bing crosby we have uh, playing the Cary grant role mm. we have grace Cary- kelly playing the hepburn role and we have Frank Sinatra taking the, the um, James Stewart role. You know, for, for my money, I would just take Philadelphia Story any day of the week. But High Society, I think, stands on its own. And I think you shouldn't compare them. It's like saying, oh, I love the book. I don't like the film. Yeah, but we do like this song. We do. Oh, how lucky we are. I to you. And you give to me True love True love So on and on it'll Ah, there we go. Oh, we Bing, love a Bing will croon us. <laughs> Bing will croon us. And Grace will have to wait for another day. That's Ruth. She didn't get much singing in that. (laughs) Ruth Barton, there's professor of film at Trinity College, talking to us about the trend of movies becoming musicals, musicals becoming movies.